everybody, welcome to Animates. I'm Paige. And I'm Chris. And today we're returning to our discussion on Steven Universe. We Thank will be discussing seasons two and three. Thank you for hanging around out there. We are uh, on an interesting release schedule, much like the original Steven Universe. But I am now finished with school for the summer, so hopefully content will be flying your way a little bit faster. Uh, we're not making any promises. We're not though. making any promises. <laughs> That's the desire. Who knows? Like last summer, we thought that would be the case, but it was like peak like COVID depression time. So we like didn't do like anything all summer. We we're just like, I want to die. I don't want to do anything. <laughs> and then this summer is going to be like anti that, hopefully, like traveling, saying hello, not being depressed. We'll see. We'll, fingers crossed. Fingers, fingers crossed. crossed. Mm -hmm. So we are picking up here with uh, seasons two and three. And got to say, on second watch, everything is wonderful. As always, please do note that there will be spoilies. And if you haven't been keeping up with it, well, you should probably go watch it before listening. Otherwise, uh... We can start. Spoiler warning, finished. Yeah, so before we got on the call, Chris was talking a little bit about the viewing experience of this as it was originally released and now that all of it is available. And part of why that's kind of relevant in this situation more so than in other shows is that for season one, it was mostly released like a normal TV show in a traditional release schedule. And then starting in season two, that is not what was going on at all. And it continued to be that way. Like it did not have a release schedule that was in any way like logical or traditional or predictable. It They would release things in these, they called them like Steven bombs. And they would be like, like sometimes as few as like four episodes. That's usually what they ended up being because they would basically be a weekend event style thing where you get two time slots worth of new content. Some of them might have been longer, but I mean, especially towards the end, once you hit seasons four and five, it it's pretty sparse pickings there. Um, until you get to the special, like, end-of-the-show event that they did. So the Steven Bombs were, uh, hmm, how should I say? They had a tendency to, in my experience, like, okay, I will speak personally first. I kind of understand the rationale for why they might have did it. I personally found it to be incredibly frustrating. And here's the reason. Because season one does a, a pretty good job of not having long strings of, I hate to call it filler, but non-plot relevant episodes. And once season two does a decently good job of this, but you definitely start to see more quote-unquote filler show up. And here I guess I'll define filler as no new world building, or if it is, it's minor, no new information about Homeworld. No new information about gem 
physiology, fusion, that kind of stuff. No new information about rose quartz. So we get into season three and you really start to feel the filler because, I mean, there's a god, like 15 episode streak that really is slice of life stuff where gems don't even show up. So Steven bombs, as you might imagine, during this period of time where you're always hoping, hopefully at least one of these episodes is going to tell us more about the gems, more about Rose Quartz. And it just doesn't. It just keeps kind of going forever. So as a viewer, I found it incredibly frustrating to view in that manner, waiting a week, two weeks, three weeks, some like they eventually go on month-long hiatuses. It, 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 it's just kind of nuts. And I don't know if I liked that a ton. Yeah, no, whereas I, I am, despite my interest in various nerd things, I am not like a message boards kind of person. So even if I really like something, I do not know what the release schedule is. Like... Usually I find out that my favorite bands, like bands that I love, love, have released albums because someone will text me and be like, have you heard the new blah, blah, blah album? And I will be like, no, I did not know there was one. Let me go do that now. And so the same thing would happen with Steven Universe. It would be like, oh, have you seen the new Steven Bomb? I'll be like, no. And then I would go check and be like, I'm like 20 episodes behind. So because it wasn't quite as frustrating for me because of my inability to keep up with it basically <laughs> so i wasn't having that experience where i was like oh god it's been a month and i got two episodes and neither of them can they were all about lars's emotional problems Ugh. and um i got no new information so for me it actually kind of worked well because often what i would run into is i would come up to a cliffhanger and then have to wait. And so that actually can be a very satisfying viewing experience. So it wasn't as frustrating for me as it was probably for people who were like keeping up with things and viewing as it aired. It It is one of those things that eventually I I sort of adopted your style of viewing towards the end because I just couldn't deal with it anymore. Like I kind of had to forget the show for a while because the viewing experience was so frustrating and uh you run into similar things where like an anime will release once a week usually like on a saturday or whenever it's supposed to view in japan and it does get frustrating waiting a week for only one episode but anime is usually pretty good about it like if you're like nowadays most shonen don't have a ton of filler anymore like again i guess that's the shonen that I watch don't typically have much filler anymore. And if they do, it's sparse enough that it's actually kind of refreshing to learn more about a character that you didn't really know that much about. Um, way back when, for like Dragon Ball Z or shows that were <laughs> stretched out, we'll say, that was also frustrating. So it's not like episodic weekly releases would necessarily be less frustrating sometimes but some of the steven bombs were painful it just it, you know it depends on what it is like i feel like you know the vast majority of tv shows for all of time were released on a weekly schedule and for the most part that's fine 
But if you have something like Bleach, you know, where they're spending five episodes powering up or whatever, you know, um, yeah, that's going to that's going to be frustrating. You're like, OK, it's been like a month and they still haven't fought yet. Come on. <laughs> Dragon Ball Z used to be that way. I remember like the wait for Vegeta to. OK, so the wait for Vegeta to come to Earth. And them to actually get to the big fight between Goku and Vegeta took for fucking ever. And I mean, months. I, I think that's like eight episodes or something, maybe a little bit more. And and watching like being a kid watching it on Toonami, you're just like, wow, I, I wish that I could see this fight. So I'll give Steven Universe some credit and say that it's, it wasn't that bad, but but when you like when when you only release like two episodes like every six weeks, you know, it's it becomes more frustrating because it's not like with with Dragon Ball Z, you're like, well, maybe next week they'll get to it. Well, maybe next week they'll get to it. Well, maybe, you know, where it's like, OK, I've just waited six weeks. You've provided me no information. And now I have to wait another six weeks. Yeah, because I, I guess um, a lot of shows that do that at least you kind of know like when they should be getting to the big fight or the big scene with steven universe because of switching back and forth between the town and gem events you never really know it could be forever until they get to the next big thing so you're right it, mm -hmm. that definitely is worse um so watch binging it much more enjoyable like even the filler is like oh okay this is fine because it's fun, and I know that the plot stuff is waiting there for me. So much more enjoyable to do it that way. And I remember stuff better. I see references better. I, and God, there are so many anime references. It's just Oh, they use, they use that filler to do a lot of anime references. There's a whole like Food Wars episode, which like as someone who really loves Food Wars, I really love that episode. Yeah, there's a, I mean, there's an episode in a dreamscape where there's a reference to the end of Evangelion uh, scene with uh, just like a head floating in a sea, except it's pizza. Um, there's a congratulations episode where people are clapping and saying congratulations, which is also an Evangelion reference. Uh, all I can say is that Rebecca Sugar really fucking loves Evangelion. Which Something that I meant to mention in the first episode, which I forgot to do, is that like as early as Cat Fingers, like that is Akira. <laughs> Yeah, Cat, like it's like like or Akira, whichever is easier. I don't know that like that's that's exact. It's basically exactly the end of Akira, but with cats. There's um, I mean, there's there there's a very famous Akira scene, which is the sliding bike. And they do that with Lion. Um, it's in a bunch of other stuff. It's referenced all over the fucking place. But in this. Yeah, case, there's like a speed racer episode, you know, with Stevani. And, and it it's it's great. Um, all right, so the viewing experience is more positive. We we do start to get filler, but the filler is usually pretty good for showing, I guess, Steve Stephen and other people's emotional development. On the gem side of things, uh, shit really kind of starts to heat up. The first season is monster of the week style viewing. 
And the biggest thing that kind of theoretically is going to happen is like some gems are coming to Earth. Whereas by the time you get to the middle of season three, I guess the end of season two. End of season two is when they do the reveal about the cluster. Right. So Earth ending extinction event and then they settle it in season three and that's big stuff so we also start to fight monsters less almost never so they really change gears in the in at the start of season two yeah definitely and i think we're part of the idea is that you know, we we see everything through Steven's eyes in this show. We gain information at the pace that Steven gains information and we're able to see things basically in the way that he sees them. And throughout season one, he has like this very sort of childish, innocent view of the world. And he's just getting old enough to really start to learn about all of these kind of gem things. And then you know, there's a big event at the end of season one. He he go experiences trauma. He learns a lot of things that they hadn't intended for him to learn yet. And things really change. He's that he starts to be allowed into the confidence of the gems to a greater degree. And he starts to gain a lot more nuance view of like his mother and gems and what they went through and the information that we gain is a lot kind of heavier. <laughs> it's it's not just sort of like it's not always just basically like gems are able to fuse. It's like um you know there was uh that that the gem monsters are actually what are called corrupted and uh the fabric of their mind has been torn and so they don't like remember who they are anymore. They have like irreparable psychic damage. <laughs> and you're like, "Ah, oh, fuck, that's a lot." <laughs> I think that one of the, like, we learn through flashbacks that Greg usually provides. We learn a lot about Greg and Rose and how they met and how they interacted. And part part of the overarching development in the show is, like, we gradually are learning more and more about Rose Quartz. And they dole these things out very uh, sparingly to us so we're always very excited to get this new information but i think a really nice thing that the show does as it i think it illustrates a conflict that many children go through once they start to hit adolescence uh, and i guess i'm speaking for children who live in sort of like um we're going to call it like a typical healthy household or maybe even just like a typical household where their children interact with their parents. Children generally start off with a pretty simplistic view of their parents' lives. And they view it oftentimes sort of as like your parents are good and they are strong and they are responsible and they... Like, they're a source of stability. And as you start to grow into adolescence, you start to learn about your parents and you start to see them as people, which means that 
you usually start to see how they aren't simple. They aren't always stable. They aren't always right and good. And that is a hard thing for children to learn, right? It is psychologically stressful to come to realize that your parents are not as great as you may great or even if not great strong as you thought they were and we see Stephen really go through this as he learns more about Rose really in season three it sort of like ramps it up quite a bit yeah like basically you know we already learned that Rose kept secrets from everyone but we start to like we start to learn in seasons two and three that keeping secrets was actually a pretty fundamental part of her and the way that she lived her life that um she kept a lot of secrets from everyone around her and sort of the like the biggest moment with that up until the end of season three is um the episode bismuth which is a double episode is episodes 20 and 21 of season three where um so there's inside lion's mane which we see the first time the first time we see inside lion's mane there is a bubble containing a gem and i guess just steven never worried about it and then he accidentally pops it and he meets this gem called bismuth who it turns out was an original crystal gem who wanted to create and utilize a weapon that's explicit purpose was for shattering gems which kills them permanently right or as close to like killing them permanently as gems can come and rose like poofed her and bubbled her and hid her inside lion and never told anyone what happened to her ever again it's a very weird episode to watch because all right so i i i do want to say this i think that the crystal gems are somewhat complicit in keeping the secret about rose keeping secrets from steven <laughs> meta secrets if you will and they don't necessarily do anything to disabuse him of the notion that his mother was honest but they know that Rose kept secrets from everyone. They even say it out loud. Steven asks why nobody was told about Bismuth. And, and I think Garnet admits that Rose kept secrets, even from us. And it's interesting to see them accept that, whereas it bothers Steven. And I think that goes back to that idea that adults, like a part of being an adult, is understanding that some secrets should be kept or that secrets are sometimes a necessity mm -hmm. for people. And a child like Steven is so, they like is honest and believe in honesty. This is a formative moment to accept that your mom who you don't really know and have very hilariously admitted that you have very conflicted emotions about was also dishonest. That yeah. episode, by the way, is fucking great. Where Steven is going into dreams. Or, no. He is learning to use a new gem power. This is floating. floating. Yeah. The episode Steven floats. And 
he he realizes that the power is tied to his emotions. So he's like, okay, think of something happy. Think of something happy. All right, think about my mom. Uh, I have really complicated feelings on that one. And it, yeah. it fucking slays me every time. Because in some ways it shows how mature Steven is. Like he's able to recognize that he has very conflicted emotions regarding his mother for a variety of reasons. Yeah, and I think that also part of the sort of like the the mystery element of the show that is especially present in Bismuth is the idea that were all of the secrets that Rose kept really necessary. And, you know, everyone thinks of Rose as someone who was this like pure like they, they they sort of talk about her as if she is like the kindest most selfless most pure-hearted person like to ever exist right but then you find out about what the deal was with bismuth and you gotta think to yourself like really was that the best way to deal with this situation was that the only way to deal with this situation of one of your subordinates being intense about something you didn't agree with was essentially to put her in a coma and hide her away and lie about it to everyone and just pretend for thousands of years that you have no idea what happened to her. I agree. I think uh, so. Uh, maybe now is a good time. Like Rose gets an introduction through Greg. So Greg tells the story of how he and Rose met. And he later tells the story of how Greg interacted with Rose, specifically the episodes about learning how fusion works. But he basically came to town to play a concert and Rose was there and he kind of fell for her and he stayed there. He basically bummed around the gem cave be and and he and Rose were in a relationship. He thought of it that way. I don't you can never really know what she fucking thought, but mm -hmm. um I can say that through those episodes, Rose's true superpower is presence. She just she's a big charismatic woman. She's literally eight feet tall and she's really charismatic. Like the voice actress they chose for her does an excellent job because she's got this deep, sweet, melodic quality to it. The only way that I can put it is that it is always just like relaxed me. She's a professional opera singer. Like, yeah, it's. You feel like you want to be around them all the time. And that is like, shown like by all her, the gems. Her voice is like the like aural equivalent of like opium. Yeah, that's an excellent way to put it. You want it like it somehow projects both strength but also tenderness. Mhm. Mm and it it the gems pretty clearly show that like they all have internal psychological problems and they get strength from Rose. Like they, okay, I'm going to put it this way. She intoxicates people with herself. And 
I don't necessarily know if she does that on purpose, but I think she's aware of the effect she has on people. Um, and people follow her. And you can kind of understand why she was able to lead a rebellion. Because that charisma would pull people to her, convince them of her cause, and make them feel like they would die for her. Yeah, I, I'm going to say I, I don't want to get uh, ahead of ourselves. So I probably I think we should probably move on to another topic after this. But I will say that knowing the ultimate reveal about Rose, I view everything up to that in a completely different context. And it makes me question like her sincerity or like whether or not she was like ever a good person. I, like the whole way through. Yeah. So this this conflict, like, I, I guess what I mean to say is like you start to learn a lot about her and you start to understand that her biggest people say such good things about her partially because she was so fucking charismatic. And that has real world correlates. People. Yeah. Like people psychologically view people who are charismatic as other things. So like sometimes this is called the halo effect, but it is a case where if you like someone or they have some quality like attractiveness or charisma, you sort of apply that the good quality of that to other aspects of their life and character. So for example, um, people may see somebody who they really like or is really charismatic as more moral or more strong or all sorts of other possible qualities. So I think the way in which people talk about her is very telling. And then I think that that's a really big reason everybody likes her is because they sort of apply this inner personal quality to other aspects of her being when we clearly find out that that should be really put into question and we see yeah. that through steven's eyes the more the more that time goes on you know the more that i that i wonder if if rose quartz was actually just gem jones if you will i mean the way that she interacts with greg like there, I find it disturbing, actually. Are, Having gotten all the way to the end of the series, I find it actually disturbing the way she interacts with him. There are, I think there are moments of sincerity between them. And I do think that she actually loved him. But... But like the way that you love treats, a dog. Yeah, she also kind of treats him like a toy. And yeah. like... The language that she used, like, it's not... I would say that Paige and I are like... It's not surface level, or sorry, it's not, you don't have to dig deep for this view. Like, the the way that she talks about playing with him is, I think that, like, they very clearly chose that language to communicate this quality about Rose. It's interesting because it was something that I was willing, that I kind of just, like, let go and glossed over the first time I watched it. But now knowing about what gets revealed in season five, like I'm not able to gloss over it anymore. I'm like, no, that's like, that's fucked up. Like well, the way that she talks to people is fucked up, especially to Greg. 
Um, go ahead with what you're going to well, say. Well, that's because you think it's like, oh, she's an alien. She's immortal. Like you, you it kind of sounds like the language that you would use if you were an immortal non-human being. Mm-hmm. Like, is it just yeah. a language thing? That's I feel like that's why it's easy to let go. But yeah, t- hindsight provides a completely different. And that's one of the things that I like rewatching this show. Think mm-hmm. like a lot of things are much different than they were before. And I think um, usually it's very interesting and great. Good viewing, like really good viewing. For sure. I will say the last thing that I'll say about Rose before we move on is another important reveal in season three is that one of the five rubies no it's jasper no it's one of the five rubies it's one of the five rubies eyeball reveals to steven that rose quartz shattered pink diamond and it's like jaw-dropping and shocking to steven and he it really like throws him for a loop and upsets him especially because just a few episodes ago you know we found out about how she poofed bismuth and bubbled her away for thousands of years because she wanted to create a weapon that's explicit purpose was to shatter gems and then it turns out that um you know, Rose Quartz shattered a diamond, and that's like, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance going on there. It's interesting because as an adult viewer, hearing, I feel like to me, that reveal is not, it doesn't have the same emotional weight that it clearly has for Steven. And I think, yeah. again, like if you view this show as growing, like a catalog of, growing up Steven is a child and child like children don't he's got that same you never kill any like you should never hurt or kill anybody if you can help it view of the world and like apply that to a parental figure and it's just like oh yeah what a fucking doozy but because like as an adult as an adult I can see the difference between learning like your mom like before you were born your mom murdered somebody and before you were born, your mom was in a war with, like, a totalitarian regime, and she got the opportunity to kill a dictator, and she did it. You know? Like, as an adult, like, I can see that those are two different things. And Steven can't. So the gems basically tell him about it later, and it, it, it definitely has a very strong psychological impact on him, continuing to change his image of of you know rose quartz so that's a very important dynamic that there are like this doesn't happen all at once there are key episodes where this is advanced but it 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 is vital to his development for these things to happen in the order that they do yeah for sure speaking of development um connie's great and always great and Connie's very interesting in the seasons because she basically uh, gets really involved with gem stuff. She learns to sword fight. Uh, there's a very weird phase where she absorbs some of Pearl's fanaticism to throw herself into uh, danger. 
that episode has a great song and Steven is like no I don't want you to fucking die for me this is weird um and but, and also Pearl you shouldn't have wanted that for my mom and if she didn't let you do that for her that was a correct decision yeah see and it's implied that she like the story that Garnet tells about Pearl Rose let her do that yeah, it almost seems like the way that Pearl talks about it, it almost seems like she wanted to do even more um, that, and that Rose wouldn't let her do it. Because basically, like, she was she was the vanguard, you know, she got like her physical form destroyed like bajillions of times. But when Steven's like, no, like, I don't want Connie to die for me. Like, Pearl's like, why won't you let me do this for you, Rose? You know, so there was clearly... There was clearly a degree of conflict about it between her and Rose. Yeah, we're going to come back to Pearl because uh, a lot happens with sure. Pearl. Sure, but, sure. Um, basically, Connie becomes a badass. And I, suffice to say, I think that she also presents a very interesting opportunity for the show to show what it is like for an adolescent to try to obtain independence from parents that are actually there and i and i know you would argue and say well steven has parents it's the gems blah 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 but connie has a standard you know she's got a she is in a situation that will apply to actual children more yes yes it's very interesting because okay number one connie's parents are both voiced by voice actors that are in uh a lot of anime for example, Connie's mom is the same voice actress that plays the colonel on Ghost in the Shell, among like a myriad other. She's very, very prolific. Okay. Um, and her father is similarly the same. So I, I, I think Rebecca Sugar specifically chose like they cast. I feel like they had to cast them for a reason. And that reason is because they're a bunch of weebs. Hmm. Um, like, it. that's what I think. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I think. Anyway, so Connie, she has to deal with, like, telling her parents the truth about the gems. And, and basically, we see her go through all the sort of growing pains that parents go through with their kids when they want freedom. And their interaction is awesome. Like, Connie and her mom have a great interaction that is also from a zombie episode, which is great. It's a great episode. That, like, you see this very controlling parent have a realization, it's like, well, I don't want to drive you away. I just want you to tell me when you get in over your head. But, like, they let Connie have freedom. It's, like, a really great model. Yeah, it's, like, the idea is, like, if I try too hard to protect you from everything, you'll just go get into trouble anyway, and you won't, f- you'll be afraid to tell me, and then I won't be able to help you, in you know? Bu- in the business, we call that an authoritative parenting style. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Produces good outcomes in children. Yeah. Um, I also think with Connie, with the Connie-Steven relationship, there are, like, more hints of romance, you know, as time goes on. Yeah, so we do see Stevani pop up a couple of times, too. There's this... Re- okay, this is one of the filler episodes that's really great 
because Beach City Drift is great because Kevin shows back up. And fucking then, Kevin. Kevin's the fucking worst. The worst. He, like, coerced Stevani, basically, and has... They clearly are both still very angry about it, and it is interesting to watch an individual person made up of two people both have conflicting feelings about this dude and steven is like shouldn't we want to beat him and connie is shouldn't we like isn't he controlling us by us wanting to beat him it's a really great diet like conversation that happens between these two children well okay adolescence regarding like the coercive effect of this dude on on them yeah which they ultimately come to the decision that like by even allowing him to take up that much space like by allowing him to live rent free in their head like they're letting him win basically and at the end by showing that they don't care about him you realize like kevin is a narcissist because the moment that they don't care about him he freaks out which is like I legitimately think that Kevin has NPD. <laughs> oh, yeah. He is, he is like, classic narcissist playbook sort of stuff. So he... it That's that's a really good moment of growth, not just for Steven, but for Connie. And I guess I will say that Connie doesn't... The last episode she appears in is basically, like, live combat training for her. Which... I, not a whole lot of, I guess, development happens. But she grows. She she continues to be a badass, you know? Um, yeah, they don't always let her, like, be involved with gem stuff because she is a human and her body is soft. I'll, I, I, for one, know that I probably cannot say that she has a soft body. That would sound very weird. Um, uh, I'm kind of like quoting um, Garnet when she tells Peridot not to throw Greg off the roof because right. he's a human and their bodies are soft and fragile. <laughs> uh, obviously, we're spending a lot of time on the characters, and I feel like that's because they really drive the show. So, for example, even when Peridot and Jasper show up, like eventually they take up a lot of real estate because they represent different sorts of conflicts and... They both change quite a bit. Um, obviously, Jasper and Lapis Lazuli are both at the bottom of the ocean for a while as Malachite, so they they don't really show up for a while. Um, Peridot gets kind of a lot of the real estate um, in Season 2. Peridot is a frenemy, which I love this archetype. I really do. Right, They're the protagonist... That is basically, <laughs> I don't want to say forced into friendship, but Steven really, like, kills her with kindness sort of deal. Yeah, and Peridot becomes a crystal gem. Like, so from the conflict of chasing her and capturing her in season two to season three when uh, they start to team up because there's a big threat to the planet. Peridot 
is a very fun character to watch change. Yeah, she's so, it's interesting because when she first shows up, you know, when she's coming back and forth from Homeworld, she's very, like, cool, calm, collected. But it turns out she's just, like, a little rage monster. Yeah, she expresses a ton of emotion, which is interesting because she's supposed to be, like, an analytical engineer type. But when she is freed from the confines of her old life, she really gets an opportunity to grow. Um, And I think she's also kind of supposed to be an exemplar for how oppressive gem culture is. Yes. Two gems. Because so much, like, they really pull apart a lot of her thinking about gem, like, the gems have a caste system. Yeah, like, yeah, the gems, like, that's something that I, like, I've been really wanting to talk about. Like, the gems have a highly stratified class-based military society like they are in the same way that the roman empire was like a military empire like a military society where like the difference between like civil authorities and military authorities was like very scant and like everything about like their society was organized to drive the building of an empire the endless building of an empire for seemingly no reason, for seemingly no benefit, you know? Um, the, and and, and it, it also leads to extreme class stratification. Um, it's actually very like the Roman Empire in many ways. Um, but then you have the, the part of it where it's gems are not born, they are made, and they are made for specific purposes. So that adds even another element to their class stratification. It's interesting because in a lot of ways, we don't really know about all this stuff because clearly the the Crystal Gems chose to fight against Homeworld. So clearly they, they did it for a variety of reasons, rejecting their system of life, their their entire way of life. And Peridot comes in as a prisoner first, and then slowly as a, f- a frenemy and then an, a friend. So she is a, a walking, living part of Homeworld that also attempts to... That's her schema for how things work. So even when she's not being malicious, the way that she talks about gems tells us a lot about homeworld. So, for example, pearls are servants. They're made to be servants, not just any servants, servants to aristocrats. So they are they are specifically made and groomed to serve. That is their entire reason for existence in homeworld society. Quartz, like Amethyst and Jasper, um, they are made to be soldiers. Uh, Rubies are soldiers. But like a different kind. Right. (laughs) Sapphire. Jasper and Amethyst are more like Marines, whereas it seems like Rubies are more kind of like the army. 
they're like just they're, sort of like infinite like okay so it's like if like rubies are orcs then quartzes are urukai that that's an excellent way to put it yeah rubies are are i don't want to say it but they're they're less intelligent on average yeah it's really see. funny actually um <laughs> Whereas quartzes seem to be very intelligent and also much tougher. And yeah, they're they're lieutenants, they're generals. You know, it's, uh, rubies are are just infantry. And sapphires are rare, and all they 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 are aristocratic, right? They are aristocrats, oracles who are sought by the diamonds themselves, and the diamonds are. The they are the emperors, plural. So they they each have their own fiefdom of planets. And gosh, Peridots are made to be engineers. Though, as Peridot puts it, she is lower in quality because Homeworld is running out of resources. So that's like a the ever so slightest little nugget that there are problems with the Empire. And, God, what other gems are there? Lapis Lazulis are terraformers. Yeah, that's interesting. That's, like, that's just thrown out in, um, that's not even revealed until season four in a song that Yellow Diamond sings, and she just casually mentions that a lapis terraforms. It's like, okay, so they can do water stuff and fly to terraform. Huh, okay. Um, and I, and I think that mostly covers the gems that we're familiar with. Yeah. Obviously we see many different types of gems exist from the bubbles that they have. And th this whole cast idea really causes some issues between Peridot and the crystal gems because she's trying to, even when, like later when she's already their friend and she's trying to cheer Amethyst up, she's trying to talk about how like, you are like tough and strong and high quality. Like, basically, like this is what you're supposed to be, and you have many of these good qualities of how you were made. And it it's a valiant attempt, but it does not work. So, yeah, it it also I think does a lot to explain like why Pearl is like the way that she is. Her like slavish devotion to Rose and like you know, her desire to, like, die for her and, like, be her sole confidant and her, like, obsession. It's basically, like, those are qualities that pearls are made with on purpose, essentially. And she was, like, freed, you know, but all of that energy went into, like, love and devotion for her rescuer. Yeah, I would argue that Rose, quote-unquote, dying was a favor for Pearl's development as an individual. Yes. And we can see how, sure. how painful that is for her and how it takes quite a while. But without somebody to slavishly devote herself to, because she does to Stephen, but not nearly. Like not to the same extent. Not to the same extent. And because the the fact that she has to like mother Stephen, that Stephen is a child who needs like guidance and correction, I think really tempers that impulse. 
Yeah, so ultimately she will she grows a lot because Rose is gone, which is good. It's good for yes. her. Um, it is good for her. So Peridot is she changes a lot. Like she really adapts to Earth faster than one might think. And like she, really swimmingly, I'd say. She she's instrumental in She's instrumental in solving the crisis of two, season two and three, the cluster, which is a whole. There's some really fucked up shit, guys, that happens in with with forced fusions. Um, but Peridot saves the planet with Steven. She invents art, which she calls Meat Morp. Which is so, f that episode is so fucking funny. This has, this is something that uh, I enjoy looking at and serves absolutely no purpose. It makes me feel bad. <laughs> Except to make me feel bad. It's so, so, it's so funny. Um, so she becomes an artist. She, she really grows into her own as a very enjoyable, scrappy member of the team there's a really really great filler episode in season three that's all an homage to um wily e. coyote um but you know it's like in everything the setting and everything where she's basically trying to poof her first corrupted gem and as a fan of classic cartoons i really enjoy it yeah i didn't notice that the first time that i watched it but this time around i thought this is just fucking Roadrunner cartoon. It right even now. because they set it in the Beta Kindergarten, which they also put in the Southwest. So it's the same like Monument Valley animation backgrounds as everything, like all of the Roadrunner cartoons. So Peridot A plus. Um, actually, interestingly, Peridot's life entwines with a very unexpected character, and that character is Lapis. So Lapis is Malachite for the better part of season two and uh, season three. They, she unfuses with Jasper in episode five of season three, Super Watermelon Island. And we also get to see Alexandrite, I think, for the first time. No, we see Alexandrite several times in season oh, one. I thought it, the first time we saw her was when she goes to dinner with Connie. Which is in season one. Okay, you're right. So we get to see Alexandrite, which is the fusion of all three gems. Um, we'll come back to fusions. But basically, Lapis holds on for as long as she can and eventually separates. And Steven really tries to convince Lapis to come live with them. And they eventually settle on the barn where Peridot is also living. Lapis is an interesting case because I know we sort of introduced her as being like sort of a, a case of trauma that we're really going to investigate. And she is further traumatized by her time as Malachite um, Lapis sort of becomes the 
lightning rod for talking about bad relationships in, in a lot of ways. Like, not the only one, but sort of like the big one. Because as Steven is taught, like, okay, here's what I'll say. Lapis talks about things in a way where she does not shield Steven from fuck. Like, she does not water down anything, <laughs> I, pun intended, for Steven at all. When she talks about her time as Malachite or her complicated emotional relationship with Jasper or her desires at the barn. She just unadulteratedly just like drops it on Steven. And Steven is like ill-equipped to handle it for good reason, I think. But they they muddle through. Yeah, definitely. I think a really, really great episode, which we did actually mention last time when we were talking about fusion is um what is the name of this alone at sea alone at sea is an episode episode 15 of season three which like honestly trigger warning for anybody who's been in an abusive relationship um like so steven and greg take lapis out on a boat to like help her feel better essentially and she's just basically she it's not helping and like jasper shows back up and she's like fuse with me again like it felt incredible to to be us like i've i've changed like and and lapis is like we're bad for each other and she's like i've changed it'll be different this time i'm the only one who understands you i'm the only one who can handle you you know and um despite lapis how like it's it's really upsetting, actually. It's, like, really difficult to watch. Yeah, from Lapis's perspective, it's very interesting because it raises the very real adult reality that sometimes somebody that you hate is also somebody you have trouble resisting. Because yeah. she says, like, I want, like, she she says, I, and like, I find myself wanting to be that again. And it's very... <laughs> It's a lot. It's like, I don't think Steven really understands any of that part at all. Um, it definitely sort of becomes for the audience at that point, I think. Yeah. And I think that's also like a big one that's not intended for the, the children watching, you know, because it's like most most children i certainly hope all children like I, w I would hope i would hope all children would not have had experiences where that is something that they can understand like the idea that you can have a relationship with someone that is incredibly toxic that hurts probably both of you but that especially hurts you and you can still feel like you you still want it somehow and even after you've escaped it you want in some ways to go back to it you know yeah um lapis is interesting to me partially because she ends up deciding to stay at the barn because pair okay sometimes lapis's behavior really puts me in this weird position because there are times where i understand like i Cycle, like I, I guess I rationally understand the issues that Lapis has, but there are times, and this comes up more, 
where she lashes out at others in a way that is also unacceptable to me. Like, her- I mean, yeah, she really lashes out at Peridot a lot in a way that it's like Peridot, like you're you are doing transference on Peridot, like you are blaming Peridot for everything bad in your life, and it is not like it is not her fault. Like a very small part of this could be blamed on her, but not all of it. Yeah, and I, it, this is one of like it it for me it's a very interesting thing as a viewer and as an adult where you have this situation where like somebody who's hurt and it's not their fault is hurting others and i struggle with those times to know what to do about it because it's like i'm not going to say to lapis like feel better stop like humor them stop being genuine but at the same time like that other person does not deserve that and just because you are hurt does not give you license to act however you want towards others yeah i i mean that's very true and and there's an extent to which at times like that where you have to be like hey i don't actually think that it's peridot that you're mad at right now um peridot's just trying really hard to be nice and you're treating her really badly and you, it's not okay. And if you can't um, stop that, you need to leave for a little while until you can stop that. It's okay though, because is it totally smash? And what I mean is they become a thing. Oh, I don't know. They do. Come on. Like, I, I guess, I guess they just a- become like, like, I, like, I always read their relationship as being like good roomies. Paradox has re- that like, bow tie. They, I don't know. They I read, do really like that bow tie. They read, they read to me as in a relationship. Like as a woman who's had like many female, like platonic roommates, all that stuff about, she's like, all right, I'm leaving. Okay. What are you like? Do you want to come? No. What season are you watching? Three, <laughs> you know, like that whole bit. Like, I, I relate to that as something that you do in like platonic, like roommate relationships, you know? Yeah, I, 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 I think maybe the reason I feel that way is because Lapis is so guarded that to let somebody in that much either means like she generally is becoming more trusting, which is growth, I guess, which is good. But also like it happens so fast and and I feel like there's a level of intimacy there that would be very hard for Lapis that she seems to have attained with Peridot. And that makes me feel like it's more like... Maybe, I'm not saying they are. I guess I would say it seems likely that they I are. guess, like, it, it just, like... Okay, like, for one, I'm like, you're going to tell me that your relationship with Clint isn't, like, exactly like that relationship? And two... um the show is so like straightforward with like lots of lesbian relationships. Why would they like feel the need to be like covert and like hinting at this one? You know, why wouldn't they, if they, if they wanted for there to be a relationship there, why wouldn't they just say it? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I wonder if anything has ever been said about this. The internet definitely ships them together, but maybe, you know, maybe they really aren't. Maybe they are just good roommates. I, I I guess what I meant to say is that that's psychologically, I guess, how I've always seen them. 
is is being a being an item but i'm willing to admit that perhaps that's not actually what's going on yeah i mean like i don't know i feel like if anything like peridot has a crush on amethyst you know that is true <laughs> um let's see here so oh my god i typed in our lapis and peridot dating and <laughs> You're in just like a swamp of porn now. <laughs> <laughs> I do see some very sultry images of, of <laughs> them and their fusion. But um, one of the first questions that Google suggests to me is, is Peridot a boy or a girl? And it has been clearly established that gems are, are coded as female. All gems are female. <laughs> so I'm just sitting here thinking, oh boy. Oh gosh. Oh no. Um yeah, so let's see. Obviously a lot of character development going on here, y'all. Um we learn how Garnet came about, which is so sweet. Ruby and Sapphire pop up a couple of times and those episodes are so great. Um possibly one of my favorite things to ever happen on the show is at the end of Keystone Motel when Ruby and Sapphire are making up and uh, Sapphire starts to giggle and Ruby says, there's my Laffy Saffy. It kills me every time. Laffy Saffy always gets me. It it really melts my heart. And it's interesting because Ruby, Ruby definitely doesn't seem dumb like some of the other Rubies are. She's the smartest Ruby. (laughs) But she also... She also definitely is very, it, it's it, like Garnet is so interesting, partially because Garnet represents a sort of a crystallization of uh. the concept of opposites attract. Yes. And that is like the metaphor is made physical by the They're actual literal powers. They're like literal fire and ice gems. Yeah. yeah, so Ruby can create fire and, and Sapphire is icy and can create ice. And and in personality, Ruby is more hot-headed. Sapphire is more likely to be sort of cold or calculating. But they, when together, they, they really seem to bridge that gap. And, you know, I go back and forth on opposites attract style things because mm-hmm. I know what the science says. And the science says that the reality is, is that similarity is really the driver of a lot of romantic interaction. Um, but it said that really the driver of a lot of romantic interaction is mere proximity. Okay, fine. Or mere, expo- or mere exposure. Yes, but the effect of, like, mere exposure would be the effect of familiarity. And similarity is a very, very strong uh, other factor in the mix. Fair enough, fair enough. Opposites attract does generate relationships, but oftentimes the difference that is so attractive becomes the thing that causes the relationship to eventually dissolve. So it's always interesting when I see these in media because Garnet is so stable, right? Garnet is the stability icon here. And I, I find the contrast like very interesting to me. Um, you know, they don't ever make a big deal about those differences. In fact, they really 
sort of try to emphasize how they're both lost and scared and doing new things. So I feel like in a lot of ways, they they do a good job of focusing on the similarities. But um, yeah, Garnet and Ruby, or sorry, Ruby and Sapphire are very different individually, but they still have like a very stable relationship, which is very cool. Yes. Well, there's another episode called like Hit the Diamond where they're all playing baseball against like the Rubies and Ruby and Sapphire fuck up the whole plan because they can't stop flirting with each other. God, we all know that couple. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like there were a lot of those people in college. Not a lot, but you know, they were around like they just. They, they are always together. They're always smooching or like hugging or whatever. Um just like in public. <laughs> and oh, just, Chris, you're such a bitter old queen. God, I know. <laughs> Shut up. I was just like, why am I not in a relationship? Um, <laughs> I mean, sometimes I was like, wait, guys, can you not be alone for like two seconds? But I will admit most of the time I was like, oh, wah. <laughs> um, let's see. Garnet. I mean, does Garnet go through a ton of development? I think in a lot of ways she stays similar. That's kind of like her thing. Like she's Yeah, like kind rock. of Garnet's whole thing is that she's like comfortable with herself and like who she is. And she's like done the work on her relationship. So most of the time when like Garnet has to do things, it's like interpersonal conflict. I would say like probably the biggest like moment of development for her is actually in season one when she tells steven about future vision you know yeah oh you know i mean there is garnet like thinking about her as the bedrock there's very interesting fusion interactions because of garnet in this in 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 this set of two seasons uh in particular go on yeah so in particular we get to meet garnet and pearl's fusion and we've met amethyst and garnet's fusion before too um yes. sugalite is the one with amethyst right and she was wild and crazy and uh not crazy wild, wild and 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 rash and strong yes and um alex not alexandrite um sardonyx sardonyx is a fucking magician and is yeah both, <laughs> she's so funny and charismatic and she's got the cutest, like, gap in her teeth. Um, she has the Heim laugh. Yeah, she she's a magician, and she's, like, a really... She's a good mix of, you know, pearls. She's a showman, she, you she's know? She's got pearls, like, panache and showmanship and garnets uh, down-to-earthness, sort of all mixed in. Um, Pearl comments that it's been a long time since they've done that and pearl you know realize over the last season she's she has had to deal with emotional conflict because steven grows up and learning about his mom and interacting with Con there's just been a lot of opportunities for pearl to get really raw mm -hmm. i would say and you know that moment of transition is very uncomfortable and she fuses with garnet and basically she she has fun. She seems to kind of forget her problems and she feels strong. And 
Garnet explicitly won't fuse with Amethyst because they got too aggressive last time. And so not only does this inner conflict with Pearl, like, wanting Garnet to such an extent that she wants it for selfish reasons. She wants it for personal reasons that sort of exploit Garnet. Well, exploits the strength of, like, the strength oozing off their relationship, as said by Pearl. Amethyst feels jealous, and mostly that reflect, like, because it's Amethyst, it reflects back on her, right? She reflects all of that sort of, like, nobody hates me more than myself type stuff back onto herself, where she sees it as a personal failing that Garnet won't interact with her in that way. And it's really complicated and it's really gross because Pearl ends up creating reasons to fuse with Garnet that are dishonest. And eventually Garnet, like Pearl is, Pearl and Amethyst both admit to Garnet, like being with you is feeling strong, is feeling stable. And just like Lapis and Jasper, this really highlights less coercive, but really a equally complicated real life relationship situation for people, right? Um, whether you like you have a mental, um, like, uh, like you have past problems, you're having self esteem issues for whatever reason that you feel bad when you're with a person who you've. Who, who basically, for lack of another way to put it, you see as having their life together. You're with them and they make you feel that way. And it is intoxicating, but that is a... I hate to use the word... That's a toxic way to form a relationship. Not because anybody wants to hurt anyone, but because it's not equitable, it, it it's not really... It's not, it, I don't know what kind of language I want to use here, but it's a problem. And it, Garnet gets mad and won't interact with either of them because she feels rightfully exploited. Mm -hmm. She's more, way more mad at Pearl. She's just like kind of like not talking to Amethyst because she's just generally mad. Um, she's not so much like, but she is mad at Pearl because Pearl manipulated her into fusing um and that's actually why the episode keystone motel happens like ruby and sapphire split apart over it they can't like get, they can't get along yeah ruby is angry and very emotional and sapphire is very emotional but in a sapphire is like we should forgive her we're eventually going to forgive her we should just get it over with for the sake of everyone and us and she is emotional, but she's doing that thing where you care so much that you're icing it over just to, like, not deal with it. Yeah, it's like she she um, wants to look look past like look forward into the future at the point which this is already dealt with and just get to that point without any of the actual dealing with it, you know, which is actually an interesting strategy for immortals. I, there's something where, like, if you're an immortal and you fuck up a relationship, just wait a thousand years. 
and it'll be fixed or it'll roll over, right? Um, Ruby kind of seems to take that approach or Sapphire kind of seems to think that way. Like, let's just wait and look forward to the time where this is fixed rather than deal with it now. Um, I, you know, this is one of those situations where Pearl is definitely in the wrong, but I understand her. Like, I, I feel like you can even get a feeling of stability from observing the relationships of other people in sort of like a weird way. Like you sure. put, you put someone else's relationship on a pedestal and it's a source of strength for you. Like it's a personal myth that you tell yourself because it helps you feel hope but it also like when you're with those people you feel like i don't know you feel better because they seem so stable so like i really on a on a deep level i understand pearl but fully like understand that what she did was unacceptable and wrong in in a lot of ways yeah yeah i definitely like I don't have as much understanding for Pearl in this situation as you do. Um, but I like I I I have understanding for Pearl in that like she is like really fucked up and she feels weak because she's just a pearl, you know? Um and that she was not being malicious or intending to hurt anyone in what she did. But she still, like, lied and coerced someone into doing something, like, really intimate that they wouldn't have otherwise done. And that's, like, that's really fucked up. So I'm, like, I I empathize more with Garnet. Oh, no, 100%. Like, I empathize more with Garnet. And what Pearl did was absolutely wrong. Like... There's no gray area here in any sense, even if I get that she was... I I guess the best way to put it is I understand feeling to want that. Mm, okay, yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. Like, the choices that she made were unacceptable, even if she wanted that, so... Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I mean, I like, Amethyst is very much the same thing. Like, Amethyst deals with so much self-loathing... Yes. That feeling the strength oozing off two people who just do not seem to have that is is very attractive. Um, yeah. I mean, it's in a less maybe romantic way. When you feel bad about yourself, it's really fun to hang out with people who do not feel that way. <laughs> I, it is like it is fun. Like it is. It is sort of this weird salve that it doesn't solve the underlying problem, which is sort of the issue, but instead of feel bad about yourself, be around people who seem to feel good about themselves. I guess for me, it's always kind of like you can pretend you're that way too. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Like, I think that's like, I honestly think that's why so many young straight women like to hang out with like boisterous twinks. Yeah, I I can totally see that. I mean, especially if the 
Twink is not of the mean variety. Yeah, but, like, that's also, like, some women like that. They're like, oh, like, he's mean, but he's not mean to me. So I can be like, ooh, girl, and, like, laugh at him being mean, but he won't be mean to me. <laughs> some yeah. people like that. No, I, I, I definitely... I think that there are definitely certain, like, I wouldn't even just say gay people, but, like, there are certain gay people, since we're talking about twinks here, I guess, that seem, like, very confident and out there and fun, and I can Mm -hmm. see how that could be very attractive to a heterosexual woman. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Because it's, like, you know, that sort of, like, archetype of, like, you know, the boisterous young twink who's just, like... We're here, we're queer, get used to it, you know, that kind of thing, you know, and just like being loud in the club, you know, and there's something like really attractive about that to like a 22 year old straight woman. Yeah, I mean, there have been shows or or stories that I've read, like they're fiction, but they're based on this idea where like a a gay guy will say, well, like, it is going to be really easy for me to win these like middle aged women over because they're so used to not having this open style of like boisterous fun and like confidence that if I can open them that to that, they'll, they'll like flock, they'll flock to me or something. I mean, it wasn't in a coercive way. It was just kind of like a lot of these women feel pent up and I can offer them a way out of that. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's like the whole idea that like, I don't feel good about myself or like I have any confidence or I'm like, I'm allowed to do anything. And here's this person where like their whole shtick is like, I am confident and I am me and I can be whatever the fuck I want. And you all just have to deal with it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. For like 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So given sort of the, the quote unquote late date, we are here in this. What are some things that are really important here for us to keep in mind as we move into the last two seasons of the show? Okay, so the main, the only thing I have left that I really wanted to make sure that we talked about and that I think is actually important as we move through the last two seasons of the show is... Why the fuck is Steven like that when apparently he's been 13 years old for all of season one? Like, why does he behave like a nine-year-old child when he's 13 years old? Like, that, we need to discuss that. (laughs) Okay, so I guess one hypothesis is that his mental image of himself can affect his physiology and thinking. And maybe because it interacts with the gym side of himself, he sort of stays that way. That could be one hypothesis. Maybe, maybe. Um, he lives alone and Greg doesn't school him. <laughs> I have a problem with the fact that this child has never been to school. Okay, yeah, let's talk about that. Because like... Greg through like Greg is definitely I would not call him an uninvolved parent. Yeah, in terms of like on a on on a like an emotional level, he's an excellent parent. But he and he's even willing to say no to some things. Like he but but their living situation is so odd like they do not live together. His dad lives in a van. 
even by when he, choice <laughs> by choice because he becomes rich and he still chooses to live in the van steven doesn't go to school steven isn't homeschooled he knows how to read how who the fuck taught him how to read and when and so i guess what i'm saying like what what you're kind of saying here is that his lack of social development could very well mm-hmm. be due to this issue and how yeah. do we feel about greg right like greg we see past yeah. greg we see now greg clearly greg does mature but like w- there are issues because greg settle like greg was willing to settle down and sort of live around rose and in many ways sort of like the free living bum style that he has doesn't change and is that the kind of is that the person we want to be parenting a child like yeah and, and like that's the that's the thing because for one i think that part of our resistance to that is that in our society we're just like that lifestyle is even though he like feeds himself and clothes himself and like you know is like involved in his child's life like that lifestyle is morally wrong even if you're not hurting anybody even if all your needs are met even if your child's needs are needs are met like choosing to live in a van is morally wrong right well, um into to our society i do want know? to say that i do not think what he is doing is morally wrong for that reason like i don't no neither of us think that but that is a message that is very like very inherent in our society so obviously if someone lives that lifestyle we automatically start to think of them as an unfit parent even if on a conscious level we do not agree with that assessment you know so i think that's a part of it and i think b like i can both criticize him for this and understand it his child is half magical immortal space alien who like will have magical immortal immortal space alien powers and responsibilities related to that and he has no idea how to deal with any of that so once steven like as of an age where that becomes part like an issue he just like abdicates responsibility to the gems because he figures they can deal with it better whereas when he was a baby and needed actual round-the-clock care like babies do he did that on his own as a single dad like the gems did not help him with that oh see that's a really important thing that i don't think i thought about like i don't know why i didn't think about it but he does talk about it in the episode where Steven becomes a baby. Yeah. So, yeah, I think... I guess... Aside from some slow development, which, during the course of the show, his development just, like, wham! Speeds right the fuck up. Um, I guess... Is this a case where, like, the consequences determine the assessment yeah it's sort of like what i have to say about greg is that i think like he's a very he's very involved in his child's life on like in a like on like a a social emotional level he's an excellent parent who like does his best 
to give, you know, to like listen to Steven and coach him through things. And he does give good advice. Um, but I would say like, if I were going to give Greg parenting advice, what I would say is like, look, I understand that there are things that are way outside of your like realm of expertise here. But when you agreed to have a child with this alien, you took that on and you need to do more to push back against the gems because Steven is part human child and he needs to go to fucking school. Yes, I agree. Like, I guess if I if I look at Greg is is Greg preparing his child to live in the develop like in our in a modern society, not necessarily by our expected path, but it, will Steven if okay, here here's the question. If Steven decided to just live a human life, which he could, that's his decision, mm-hmm. would he be prepared? No. Yeah. No, I think he'd be prepared, just not to like live like um like comfortably. Like I guess he, that's he, what I, like, he would he would be poor because he has no education. But like he has the basic like literacy and math skills and like people skills that he would be able to like hold down some kind of job and secure housing for himself and feed himself. Okay. Okay. Yeah, like yeah. Could he live his best life? I think so. Emotionally, economically, he would find it hard, though. He he would he would find it very challenging economically because he has no education. But like he would he would he would survive. He would not die. You know, um, that yeah. Basically, what I would say, like what I the main part that I would criticize Greg on is like stand up for yourself. Like, stand up for yourself to these aliens and say, no, he has to go to school. Um, But I think that that's a big problem. Like, that's one of Greg's biggest flaws, generally, is that he just can't, he does not stand up for himself. Yeah, really, I guess what I would say is Stephen is really, right now, Stephen is really probably going to become like Greg in, in terms of living style. Yeah. Like lifestyle. Like, again, not that, that there's anything wrong with that, but like, chances are, I would predict that based on the fact, the, the way that he's living, eventually he'll probably kind of live like Greg does. Parents, children oftentimes live a very similar lifestyle to that of their parents. Like, they mm-hmm. do similar things. That's just a, a, a thing that happens, whether people <laughs> like to admit it or not. Um, so, Stephen may like if he were to jump 20 years into the future like aside from being a gem might very much just look kind of like gray yeah i mean and that's the thing i think like for like people like you and i like that's kind of hard to like accept you know because it's like we both come from like middle class backgrounds and chose to pursue college degrees i mean you have a fucking phd for god's sake you are you are the ivory tower, you know, like, um, my family like, grew up, here, you know, <laughs> divorced and we, we didn't have a lot of money. So it's lower middle class, but still, still like middle, you know, it's like, yeah, like when I was a baby, we were dirt poor, but by the time I was really like aware, like we were, we were comfortable, you know, we weren't, we didn't have to worry about like where the food was coming from. Right. Okay. Yes. That's fair. I never yeah. had to worry about that. Yeah, like, I never had to worry about that. Like, when we were little, we were definitely eating a lot of, like, Lipton sides. 
but we always had enough. And by the time I was really aware of it, like we were, we didn't even have to eat Lipton sides anymore, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, like, so for people from our kind of background, the idea that like, you can just like, kind of like choose a life of poverty and be okay with that is very difficult to accept because it's very outside of our experience. But the thing is like, if you are like, if you are relatively happy and healthy and like having all of your needs met and like not neglecting any progeny, that's fine. You know, like it's not really any of my business, you know? I mean, yeah, we sort of like, it's funny because people will laud people who like get off the grid. Mm -hmm. And, and a lot of times, like a lot of those people will use up all their money becoming mm -hmm. self-sufficient. So they will essentially be poor by modern standards. Yeah. But like people are like, damn, like that's the goal. But if you look at somebody who like is Greg, Greg is self-sufficient. He takes care of his needs and his child's needs. He's a small business owner. He's a small business owner. <laughs> like, I feel like people's reaction would be like, well, the homesteader's cool, but Steve is, or Steve, uh, Greg is not cool. So I agree. Yeah. yeah that's a, big, yeah. that's a very interesting dynamic. It's definitely like in America, we have like real actual material class in the Marxist sense. And then we have something that is about social dynamics that I don't really have a word for other than class. And like Greg's behavior is like, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a sub genre of what people would call white trash and yes. people don't like it and they don't accept it and they think it's not okay. But actually like he's happy and healthy meets his needs and his child's needs. Actually the fact that he chooses to live in a van is none of our business. Right. Yeah. I, that's, yeah, that's a very interesting way to, I love that. I, I, I honestly didn't really think about that the first time I watched it. I think a lot about the fact that Greg lives in a van. <laughs> but something I just thought about for the first time, there's always food at the house, at the temple. The gems don't have, where does that food come from? Probably Greg. Yeah, because Steven probably doesn't go shopping. Have a job. <laughs> you know, like somebody has to pay for that food. So. Yeah. Greg is cool. Just. He should have told the gems that Stephen has to go to school. Hmm. And then maybe Stephen wouldn't behave school? like a nine-year-old when he's 13 years old. School is cool. School is cool. Hmm. So yeah, I, that I feel is like a great place to sort of wrap up. I mean, there's a ton of stuff that happens in these two seasons, but this is sort of a pretty good deep dive, you know? I mean, like, I want to like, go through this and summarize every single thing that happens, you know, um, that would take way too much time though. There are some really like, and I would be, encourage you to, sorry, go be, ahead. And it would be boring. Yeah, it would be boring. I, I encourage you to go watch these seasons, like watch some of the filler episodes and stuff because they're really entertaining. A plus plus as always. Mm hmm. Um, so for the record, next episode, we will be discussing seasons four and five. If you are watching along, yes, there is a season five of Steven Universe. It's just not on Hulu. I don't know where else it is. I will be trying to figure out where to watch it. I wish you luck. I don't know why. I don't know why it's not on Hulu. 
Yar har fetal being a pirate is alright for me. <laughs> this is not an endorsement of that. <laughs> yes. Alright. So yeah, um Chris, if that's all you've got. I'm done. Yeah, okay. Well, in that case, I've been Paige. And I've been Chris. And this has been Animates. You can find us on social media. On Facebook, we're Animates Podcast. And on Twitter, we're at Animates. You can also send us an email for longer form questions and comments. The email is animatees at gmail.com with the numeral eight instead of the letters A-T. You should also rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast because that will help other people find the show, which is what we always dream about. And if you're feeling especially generous, we do have a Patreon where you can throw us a few bucks to help cover the hosting fees for the podcast. That is, again, Animates on Patreon.com. And as always, thanks for listening.